Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S Treats, ninistreats.com, an amazing family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina. You can buy their delicious crumb cakes at ninistreats.com or on goldbelly.com. Nini's Treats, you won't leave a crumb. Hi, listeners. First, I just want to thank you all so much for listening to my podcast. I see the numbers and I know you all are out there, but I don't know anything about you or who you are or what you like or what you don't like. My email is zibby at zibbyowens.com, or you can reach me through my website, zibbyowens.com, through Instagram or Twitter at zibbyowens. I would love to hear from you guys and just to know what's working, what's not working, what could I do better? Are you all moms? Are you not moms? I don't know. I'd love to hear from you. I want to thank you for making this a top 40 podcast and I couldn't do it without all of you. And I just want to know who you are out there. Thanks so much again for listening and thanks for reaching out. I'm really excited to be here today with Joe Piazza. Joe is an award-winning journalist, editor, travel writer, author, and podcaster. She has contributed to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, New York Magazine, Elle, Glamour, Marie Claire, and many others. She has appeared on CNN, NPR, Fox, the BBC, and MSNBC. She's written seven books, both nonfiction and fiction, including her most recent, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win and How to Be Married. She also recently launched a podcast with the How Stuff Works Network, which is now iHeartMedia, entitled Committed, in which she explores the factors that affect marriages. A graduate of University of Pennsylvania with a master's in journalism from Columbia and a master's in religious studies from NYU, Joe currently lives in San Francisco, but is moving for a little bit with her husband, son, and large dog. So welcome to Joe. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Your latest book, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, is timed just perfectly. Did you have the idea for this? book in mind for a while, basically what happens to a woman running for the Senate, or did sort of the cultural zeitgeist push you in the direction of exploring the rise of the female candidates? How did you come up with this idea? You know, during the last election, the last presidential election cycle, I really started thinking that I wanted to do a book about a female candidate. Um, And not just because of the female candidate, but because of all female candidates that were running and how the media treated them. So the original plan was for it to be kind of a satire. And then election day happened and the entire world changed and the world became a satire. And I couldn't really write that book anymore. I knew that it had to be a stronger character driven narrative so that we could really see women who lead and women who should be elected to office in fiction because they just don't exist. We don't see them in fiction. We don't see them on TV shows. We don't see them in movies. Female characters that are politicians tend to be one kind of person. They're kind of a shrew, a bitch, or they're an idiot, like on (laughs) Veep. And I wanted to show a real ambitious, likable woman politician. And so that's, so the book changed. It's a long answer um, to the fact that I had the idea and then everything kind of went to shit and the whole book became something different. <laughs> I feel like most books tend to take a, you know, meandering path like that. I don't know. There's always some story behind it. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I've like, I've, I've never ever finished with the book that I started out with. <laughs> Uh, outlines, you know, be damned, I guess. <laughs> I know, exactly. I've gotten better at outlining. I used to not outline at all. 
in the very beginning, when I first started writing, I would just sit down and just go. And now I'm like a pretty meticulous outliner. Well, it seems to be. Whatever you're doing seems to be working. <laughs> it's working. It's for now. People, people are reading the book. So that's, that's all we can hope for. <laughs> did you do a lot of research for this book? Did you talk to women senators or women running for office? Or did you just sort of wing it? I did so much research for this book. I mean, I'm a journalist by trade. So I approach all of my fiction the same way I approach my journalism. I actually interviewed more than 100 women who had run for office, were running for office, or who had run campaigns. Wow. Um, so the book was super research intensive. But I think that that made it a lot better because there's no way to wing politics. And one of my goals with the book, I mean, first to show a woman candidate, but second was to make people walk away feeling a little bit smarter about the political process. Mm -hmm. I think that we're exhausted by the news cycle. And a lot of people, myself included, with the news cycle, we're just like, you know, what? I just want to check out. I'm just so sick of all of this. And I wanted the book to give people a reason to check back in. So it was really important for it to be accurate in terms of the politics. And did you time it intentionally knowing that the midterm elections were coming? Or was that just happenstance? I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an evil genius in that way. <laughs> I was just like, you know what? We are, we are going to come out right ahead of the midterm elections, And if all goes to my evil genius plan, our uh, TV show version of Charlotte will come out for the in time for the presidential. So. Oh, I didn't know there was a TV version. That's exciting. There is going to be a TV version. We, have, we actually haven't announced it yet. And we will be announcing it hopefully in the next couple of months, but all of the, all of the TV cogs are in the work. That is really exciting. Did you get a say of who plays Charlotte? I did. And I got my first choice. Awesome. And she actually, she chose us, which was amazing. It all happened very organically. And hopefully I can tell you more about that in the next month or so. Perfect. Well, now I'm even more intrigued, <laughs> but having just, having just. Well, what, I, what I can say is the the process was so interesting because I had a ton of meetings in Hollywood, mostly with men, who would throw out names for Charlotte of women who were 30. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Charlotte is a 47-year-old mother of three. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but she, this woman could play old. And I'm like, we're not going to work together. <laughs> I've heard you have to be kind of stick to your guns and what you really want. It's easy to get pushed around. You really... You really do. And I, I mean, I get it. Everyone in Hollywood looks the same age, but still it was very important to me that the character of Charlotte Walsh be played by a woman who was actually Charlotte Walsh's age. All right. Well, now I'm going to start brainstorming who you picked and I'm going to see if I'm right. <laughs> the, <laughs> You'll know soon I'll enough. I'll know soon enough. You. <laughs> One part of the book that I found super interesting is Charlotte's relationship with her husband. I know you've also written a whole book on marriage, which was also fantastic. And I'll talk about that in a sec. But how did you decide to illustrate this particular strain of tension between them? Like, despite how far women have come in so many ways, there always seems to be an issue when the woman is the breadwinner or the more powerful in the relationship. I felt like when Charlotte had her husband turn down that board invitation in Silicon Valley so that he could stick around Pennsylvania more was like, and he was not really happy with that was such a, it's such a great yeah. scene. Another great scene when that magazine article came out about her and there was a photo of Charlotte, you know, looking all powerful with bright red lipstick, her kids at her feet, and then her husband's in the back cooking. And he is not at all happy about that. And is like, what the fuck? She makes me sound like a gigantic pussy and starts like taking on an, an internet troll. How did you come up with this particular dynamic? How did, is that also research based from friends? Like, tell me all about that. Well, you know, I'm just seeing it more and more often. I'm just seeing more women who are 
either the breadwinner or they're in a position that's much more powerful than their husbands. And with a lot of them, you know, they're married to good men. They're married to men who would call themselves a feminist. And yet it still grates on them. My husband and I kind of flip flop back and forth between, you know, who has the big job and who does more of the stuff around the house and who takes care of the kid. And it's been hard for us. Too. And my, my husband is like the most feminist guy you've ever met. He read like all the Judy Bloom books when he was a kid. <laughs> he cried at Blubber. Aww. And still, it's hard for him. And I wanted to show that dynamic. And especially with a woman running for office, it's funny because the publisher originally, one of the titles they wanted to call this was The Candidate's Husband. Mm. And I was like, oh, hell no. No, we're not. We're, it's not about him. But on the campaign trail, it always becomes about him, much more so than when a man is running. No one really cares about his wife all that much. But when a woman's running, everyone wants to know what her husband thinks of her platforms, who's watching her children, you know, how does her husband feel about her running for office? And so it was really important for me to show Max's side of this. A lot of marriages also don't survive the campaign trail. And I interviewed a lot of husbands of women who were running or women who had run in the past. And they said it was the hardest thing their marriage ever went through, harder than buying a house or having kids, which is usually the hardest things in a marriage. Hmm. What do you think about politics in particular? Is it just how exposed everybody is or just the... It's how exposed everybody is. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the fact that you just get your guts ripped out on a daily basis and your whole family gets exposed to scrutiny. You have no privacy anymore. You become a very public person and also the rigors of the campaign trail. And you're spending 90% of your time fundraising on the campaign trail, which is a soul killing occupation. Uh, And I think that that just, it wears, it wears a marriage down and a lot of marriages just don't survive it. Well, you certainly learned a lot in your book, Research for How to Be Married and going all over the world, uh, (laughs) learning from different women. I love your approach. Like, Hey, I'm getting married. Let me get all the data I can from everyone. (laughs) You know, it's like from everyone, 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 everywhere. Thank you, Yahoo Travel for sending me all over the world as an editor. Yeah, I had no idea how to be married. And I still really don't. It's funny. I reread How to Be Married the other day, now that we're three years in with a 16-month-old. And I'm like, wow, those people sound so cool. (laughs) Those people who were just traveling around the world without any responsibilities and kids. And But it also kind of holds up. Like, the advice is helpful to me. And I am the one who lived the advice three years ago. (laughs) It was helpful to me, too. (laughs) It's always good to, like, go through a little refresher course. You know, you get married and people give you some random advice here and there. Like, I don't know. It's always so trite. And this is such actionable advice. Like, you you even at the beginning, you write, you know, some of the things you picked up on. Like, talk about things that make you feel uncomfortable and itchy and happy and sad and strange. And walk around naked, but don't lie around in your sweatpants. And then you said the key to it all is that a good marriage isn't about shit always going right. It's about the times when shit goes wrong, very wrong, which I thought was really interesting and illuminating in some ways. I mean, you had a number of things go wrong, quote unquote, during your first year. Do you think you learned more from the people you talked to about it or from what you went through or both? I think both. I do think both. I mean, I think that our marriage comes out stronger every time the shit does go wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's just... The worst. I mean, the newborn phase for me was the worst. And for Nick, like it was hard for Nick to adjust to being a dad. And it was hard for me to adjust to being a mom and the lack of sleep made me a monster. And now coming out the other side of it, I'm like, oh, wow, I like you so much more now that we went through that. Like, I, I know you so much better. But the advice was also good. And I love what you said, you know, because so much advice that you get about marriage is trite and lame. And people were really open and honest with me. 
which was nice. People also like to talk about their marriages, which is really interesting. Like you get someone going on marriage and I've learned that from doing the podcast committed and they'll talk to you for hours and hours. Like you're never going home. You're, you won't get away from them. <laughs> uh, tell me about your podcast. It's amazing. I've listened to it. I like to listen to it as I'm like falling asleep and I'm like totally in these relationships. It's amazing. How did you get into that? Was it your idea to sort of parlay the book into a podcast or how did it all come about and how do you like it? I love it. Doing the podcast is the most fun that I've had in journalism in like 10 years. And How Stuff Works actually approached me. They were like, hey, we love your book. Would you want to do a podcast? And I was like, I think so. I had no idea how to do a podcast. I love podcasts. Podcasts and the first season of The West Wing, what got me through breastfeeding and pumping <laughs> the first three months that I had my son. But I also knew that if I was going to do a podcast, I wanted it to be a really good podcast because there's a lot of really shitty podcasts out there. Not like this um, one, though. <laughs> no, no, not, not, not like this Present one. company excluded. Um, okay, good. All right, go on. <laughs> exactly. All, both of the people having this conversation have excellent podcasts. There we go. But... I knew that I wanted to be really good and how stuff works agreed. And so they paired me up with this wonderful producer because I had no idea what I was doing. And they built me a podcast studio in my storage unit in my basement, like literally where we store our skis <laughs> and taught me how to make a podcast. And it's been awesome. Like we have told some incredible stories. This week's episode was a guy who was about to propose to his girlfriend and then got in a basketball accident and was paralyzed from the shoulders down and we've gotten the most response from any episode from this week's episode. People are just hungry for real stories about real marriages. So it's nice. It's great. I really, I love the podcasting. I think sometimes people are more willing to open up about marriage to people they don't know as well. I don't know. I feel like with your friends in your circle, sometimes it's harder. Do you find that? I mean, I, I think if somebody came and asked me random questions, I'd be more inclined to talk about it than with like, you know, another mom at my kid's school or something. Totally. Well, it's interesting because not for me, like I'm so used to talking about my marriage that sometimes maybe I talk about it like too much, but I was at dinner with a bunch of other moms the other night and I started talking about something about Nick, like that he does that annoys me. Oh, the fact that like he's like the trash police that like, I can't, if I throw anything out that he thinks is usable, he'll take it out of the trash. So I only throw things away when he's out of town <laughs> and I throw out these slippers and he's like, what's wrong with these slippers? And I'm like, they're dead slippers. They're broken, dead slippers. And he's like, I can fix these. And I was like, Oh my God. And the other moms were kind of taken aback that I was like slamming my husband to them. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I realized I thought about it. I'm like, wow, they've never opened up to me about anything in their marriages. So yeah, I agree. I think that You know, it's easier to talk to a stranger about your marriage than the people in your circle because you also kind of want the people in your circle to think everything is great all the time with your marriage. I just happen to be a person who points out all of the things that are wrong with my marriage (laughs) all the time and and the great things because I think it's important to talk about both. And I love your story, how you felt like you, what was the word you used that you like conjured up your husband that you like wished for him in so many ways. And then you just happened to meet him on some random beach in Aruba or something. I probably got that wrong, but it was like some... <laughs> no, I did. I, I, I conjured him. I'm a witch. Um, <laughs> I met him actually on a boat in the Galapagos Islands, which sounds totally fake. Like sometimes I lie if I don't feel like telling the story. And I'm like, oh, we just met on Twitter. <laughs> but we were both journalists traveling in the Galapagos. I was working for Yahoo. Nick was working for his own website and, you know, fell for each other on this boat. And then we got engaged three months later. It's like a crazy romantic comedy. And maybe it will be. I don't know. Is that is that in the works? <laughs> it is in the works. I'm actually I'm talking to people about both a scripted and unscripted version of how to be married. But that's a little bit, you know, I never trust or believe that anything is going to happen in Hollywood. 
I feel like Charlotte Walsh is a little bit further along, but we'll see if How to Be Married does indeed become a romantic comedy. I miss old, the old romantic comedies, and I'm so excited that they're starting to come back. Totally. I actually emailed my agent a couple of days ago. I wrote this really bad first novel, and I call it my practice novel because I was like, trying to see if I could write fiction called Love Rehab. And it's really bad in like an awesome way. It's pure chiclet. It's like kind of trashy, but also kind of feministy, edgy. And now that the rom-com is back, I emailed my agent. And I was like, yeah, we should totally turn this into a movie. And she's like, all right, I guess we'll try. <laughs> That's awesome. You said in an article for Forbes that you think podcast clubs might replace book clubs all over America and that you've started to see that happening. Tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, I see the numbers for how many books we sell and I'm in a good position. Thankfully, people are buying my books and reading my books, but they're such a small fraction compared to the downloads we get with the podcast. I mean, we're at, we were at a million downloads, I think like three months in for committed. And so I'm just seeing that's where the audience is right now for storytelling. And I think that podcasts are a lot easier to digest. You can do them while you're doing other things. And I am seeing a lot of podcast clubs replace book clubs because it's kind of the same muscle too, you know, in terms of absorbing a story. I don't think that book clubs are going anywhere. I don't think books, hopefully books aren't going anywhere because I have no other skills, but (laughs) I am seeing an uptick in the podcast club. And I kind of love it because, you know, an episode of a podcast, they make you think the same way that books do. And they're a little bit more accessible, especially for busy moms than sitting down and reading an entire book. So I'm all for it, especially if people want to listen to Committed and go talk about it. You, I'm sorry to jump around a little bit, but you wrote an essay for Elle called I Took a Solo Vacation from My New Baby and it felt absolutely fucking wonderful, which I laughed out (laughs) loud just even reading that. (laughs) So you left your three-month-old son for two nights under the pretense of finishing the edits on your novel, but really, as you say in the article, what I really needed were two nights of uninterrupted sleep to try to make my brain function the way it did before hormones and lack of sleep drove a truck through my prefrontal cortex. And then you went on to say, parenting, I have come to learn, is most mostly about being terrified of doing everything wrong all the time, Googling maniacally, hating everything Google tells you, and then winging it, which I just loved. That's just so perfect. I stand by all those words that I wrote. And I've since left him. I, I went to New Zealand for two weeks and flew my mom to San Francisco and her and Nick took care of him. And he's fine. He's fine. I mean, he ate some dirt, but he's all, <laughs> he's all good. I fully advocate for getting rid of your kid for a while. I think it's, I think it's really important. And do you think just the having independence to sort of maintain your own identity has helped you as a mom? I know there's all this controversy, like not controversy, but heated differences of opinions when it comes to being a mom and how to be a mom and, and everything. By going oh away, God. do you feel like that just sort of set the stage for you and you yeah. knew what you how you wanted to do it? Yeah, I mean... Every, Everyone has an opinion about how you're supposed to be a mom. I think you're supposed to be a mom, however works for you and whatever keeps the baby alive. But I know for me, it's really important for me to still have my own life and my own passions outside of being a mom. I mean, we didn't have any childcare for the first year because we live in San Francisco, the like land of no nannies. And so Nick <laughs> and I traded him off for the whole first year. I was with him so much that I did need some breaks to you know, remember what it was like to be me. Yeah, I know. I'm actually divorced and remarried and I get these like every other weekends off. I feel like I come back oh. a different person. It's it's hard. I mean, it's painful and it's hard, but I do of sleep course, and miss, I of do. Of course, you miss, your, you miss your kids, but like still, like 
I, I, I fantasize about that sometimes. I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> not, that I, not that I want to divorce my husband, um, but I'm like, oh, if Nick and I did get divorced, then I would get like a break every other week, and that could be yeah. kind of great. But that happened to one of my girlfriends, and then the guy that she married was like, I want to have a kid. So like she gets this break, but then there's also a baby there. So... Yeah, you really have to yeah. time that right. Yeah, <laughs> I already had four kids, so there were no more kids coming <laughs> for me. Yeah. But well, um, and people, people actually don't like it when I joke about divorcing Nick. Like, I get so many nasty comments when I say those kinds of things, and I'm like, I'm really, I'm just joking. I only think about it like once a week. It's like not a big deal. Everyone thinks about divorcing their husband. I can't tell you how many people have been like, well, that sounds like a good arrangement. I might have to think about, you know, I might have to think about no. leaving, you know, they'll even say it in front of their husbands. Maybe we should get divorced. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I are know, you kidding? Yeah. You're kidding or you're not kidding. I don't know. <laughs> There's always know. a little truth. Let's see how that goes for you. <laughs> so you also wrote a lot about how you took a genetic test and found out that you are a carrier of the gene that you're father ended up ultimately passing away from muscular dystrophy and that obviously, you know, when you're a carrier, you can pass it on to your child and you wanted to have a baby and get pregnant at the time and had a whole debate over what to do. And ultimately, as you have a baby, you decided to go for it, but you wrote about it so beautifully and openly and honestly, like the rest of your work. I just wanted to hear more about, you know, you and Violet and the office finding out your results and the whole scene when, when you tried to process it and everything. Yeah, it was, you know, it was so hard and it was such a big moment. And it's interesting now that it's three years later and I don't think about it as much. And I've shown no symptoms or signs of, of the disease so far. In fact, I'm going to the neurologist next week just to check in about it. My dad started to show symptoms in his 40s and 38. We also haven't tested Charlie. We will at some point, but also probably not until the healthcare situation in this country is a little bit more ironed out because I don't mm. know how I feel about him having a pre-existing condition on his record, mm. you know, a pre-existing condition for something that may not even happen to him. Um, he may never show symptoms of it, but that makes me nervous. But it was such a hard thing because we did think we're like, all right, we wanted to know our options. How could I not pass this gene on? And so we talked about doing IVF, but what we found out is that we wouldn't be able to separate the embryos for this specific gene. So we wouldn't be able to test until 20 weeks. And at that point, I knew that I didn't, I personally just didn't want to terminate a pregnancy. So we rolled the dice and we, we don't know what's, what's going to happen, but I'm okay with, with the not knowing. And we're just preparing it. For me, knowing that I'm a carrier, I just try to be as strong as I possibly can. I take care of myself a lot better than I used to before I knew. And so in that way, it's kind of a blessing, the knowing. You know, it's like a whole new world with this ability to predict for yourself or your children. How much do you want to know? How much do you want to know about them? When should they pick what, you know, it's like if we find out, if we take all the tests for them when they're babies, like what if they didn't want to know? What I don't if they know, didn't want to know? Yeah. And then I you know. have to, and then I know there's just like so many, two big questions to ask on like, you know, a Thursday. <laughs> right. And how would you change your life? knowing is the thing and like how would they change their life knowing I mean I think I think it is nice to have some things that are unknowable I mean because also with everything we know about genes now there's still so much that we don't know um, and so there's still genes that turn on or never turn on at all that cause a lot of these illnesses and you could just be disrupting your life for for no reason I, if it taught me anything it's you know just live your life every day because right now is good so, yeah. you know, I just can't worry about the future. Yeah. 
Plus all the people who, not to be morbid, but you, I mean, you could get hit by a car tomorrow and you just, I mean, then, then yeah. I would like, I think about this and I'm like, I'm going to waste all this time worrying about, you know, early Alzheimer's and, you know, anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I, I always like go back to this, but. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And I just, and so I've just like, I've kind of decided at least for now, I'm like, I'm just not going to worry about that. Um, and we'll, te- we'll let Charlie make that decision if he wants to be tested. Um, he can, as long as. You know, we have a sane person in the Oval Office, or if we live in Canada. I think about moving to Canada a lot lately. I actually just found out that Canada allows for anchor babies. So if you have a baby in Canada, you can then get Canadian citizenship. So I'm like, all right, let's just go deliver in Canada next time I get pregnant. <laughs> I mean, Whistler, you could go skiing. There are great places in Canada. Really nice places in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, the and just in terms of your writing process, I know we're almost out of time, but in terms of your writing process, when do you get all the stuff done? You write articles and books. You just have a new exciting two book deal that you just signed. When are you doing all this? What's your process like? For my novels, I make myself write between a thousand and four thousand words a day, depending on how fast the book has to be done. Right now I'm at the thousand word mark for the new book that I'm doing with Christine Pride for HarperCollins. And I just make sure that I get that done before I do anything else because there's only so many words that I have in me a day. And then after that, I'll switch to like the next most important thing, which is whatever article I'm working on for a magazine or newspaper. I just finished one today for the Wall Street Journal. And then after that, I'll do like kind of mindless crap. So emails, stuff like that. But I have to get the important words done first because I won't be able to do them later. I also, it's interesting I read for about an hour, sometimes two or three before I go to bed. And I write a lot then um, because my brain kind of like goes into a state where I start getting ideas and I write a lot of things longhand. And then the the next morning I'll put them in the document. Huh. I hardly ever hear that anymore. I mean, reading, but writing longhand. Yeah. Writing longhand. And there's something I, I get a lot of interesting inspiration when I'm writing longhand. So there's like actual piles and piles of like yellow legal pads by my bed while I'm writing. And have you read anything really great lately? Not to put you on the spot. Like what are you reading right now? So I finished Curtis Sittenfield and Lauren Groff's short story collections. And I usually hate short story collections because they usually just feel like someone's like, look at me and my MFA project. But (laughs) they were both spectacular. Like I loved both of them. If I want to just relax before bed, I actually read a thriller because I don't write thrillers so I can just enjoy them and I'm not thinking about how am I structuring my next novel? I can just kind of like let my brain relax a little bit. I just read Cross Her Heart, which was the book of the month pick. And it was good, but I'm actually, I was going to email book of the month. I think they should have had a warning that it includes child rape and the murder of a two-year-old baby. Yikes. When you selected that as your book club pick because didn't know and kind of freaked me out when I started reading it. Yeah, I I get that. (laughs) Well, just as a closing, do you have any advice to aspiring authors out there? Any failures you've overcome to achieve everything you have or just advice in general? I do. I actually gave this to someone last night who people tell me every day that they want to write a book. A lot of men tell me, like powerful men in tech tell me they want to write a book, but they're always like, oh yeah, you know, once I quit my big powerful tech job and I'll I'll just go to a cabin in the woods. That's when I can really like write my novel. And I'm like, I wrote my last novel with a newborn attached to my boob, like sitting on the toilet most of the time. So <laughs> God bless you and your little cabin, man. <laughs> but the best advice that I give to anyone that says they want to write a novel is I'm like, okay, so I want you to sit down every day and write a thousand words a day. And if you can do that for a month straight, then you'll be able to write a book. If you can't do it for a month straight, 
you probably don't want to be a writer because writing is a habit and writing is a muscle and you just get good by doing more of it. So that's, that's really my best advice is see if, see if you can do it before you declare yourself a writer. I, I actually didn't declare myself an author until like last year until I was seven, seven books deep. And now I'm finally comfortable saying, Oh, I'm an author. Before that, I just kind of felt like a fraud. <laughs> well, before I talked to you, I mistakenly Skyped another Joe Piazza and who was not you. And they're like, who's this? And I was like, is this the author, Joe Piazza? And they're like, oh no, that's someone else. <laughs> so anyway, so they, they knew, they knew you were an author. They knew who you were. <laughs> Great. I love that Joe Piazza. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and share all your experience. And I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Take All care. right. Bye. Bye, Zimmy. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Nini's Treats. Nini'sTreats.com, available also on goldbelly.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.